On today's episode, DJ Medina, Rob McCallum, and I talk about Henshin Engine, the video game. Did it reach its Kickstarter backing? What makes for good sci-fi these days? We discuss that, and also what their influences are that drive their creativity in all their projects. And Rob answers our questions about his award-winning documentary, Missing Mom, as we celebrate the second year anniversary of Retro City Games. All this and more as we delve into the Pop Culture Cosmos. Welcome to the Pop Culture Cosmos. We are now live, that's right everyone. We are at Retro City Games and their second anniversary. This is Pop Culture Cosmos. How are you? Well, I'm doing fantastic. Yeah. Yeah, there you go. And who are we with over here? Hi, guys. I'm here today with DJ from Henshin Engine and also director extraordinaire Rob McCallum. How are you guys doing today? Good, good. DJ, you're pretty uh, close to your Kickstarter goal. Yeah, we are $150 away from hitting our goal. So, an exciting night. It's an exciting night indeed. You're very close to meeting your goals. Tell us a little bit more. First off, as we get started here on the podcast radio network, Pop Culture Cosmos, we're talking Hench and Engine. First off, tell us a little bit more about Hench and Engine. Tell us everybody out there why they should go and, well, help you out on Kickstarter with the great Henshin Engine. Well, I mean, I, I think there's some actually good news right now. Why don't you check your your page right now? Seriously? And this is going on as we speak right here on Pop Culture Cosmos. They are checking right now for Kickstarter. As we or speak. <laughs> trying to, anyway. But Henshin Engine is a great project, a great game that you can help also as well on their Kickstarter that you can help fund, you can get, help this make this happen as far as it's concerned. Stretch Fair, goals, everything you. out. Oh, we hit it! We hit it! You're welcome. Congratulations! You. I just uh, I just put you over the top. <laughs> right on yeah. the air. Right awesome. on just right on the air. Strong. Very cool. They have reached their goal. Everyone, congratulations to Hench and Engine! They have reached their Kickstarter goal, and it is now up to you out there listening to go ahead and help them out even more because there are stretch goals beyond that they want to achieve. Yes. That would you make can't me... even realize what's going on. I... <laughs> he is in so stun... much going on right now. I'm, I am in that. He's speechless right now. I waited just for that, just to make sure that it was caught live. <laughs> yes. Just so I could get you caught off guard. Oh, man. Thanks. I guess uh, a good topic, now that we're here at Retro City Games here in Henderson, Nevada, the premier place to go here in Southern Nevada for, well, retro gaming, gaming needs as far as from all the way back, all the way forward. You know, just a, a great, great place now. It's going on two years. Nicole and Doug have done an outstanding job as far as running, uh, getting the, the gaming community involved, getting us involved here at Pop Culture Cosmos with everything that's Retro City Games. And we just want to, uh, you know, while we're here, congratulate them on two great years of retro gaming. 
Retro City is the epicenter, I think, of retro gaming when For it comes sure. to not only Nevada, but I think the West Coast. Like, what I love about it is the community aspect. We got original game creators like yourself. We got guys like Gerald here who's really kind of bringing everybody together as the glue. I've been fortunate enough to make some movies on the subject that kind of fit in here and there. It's a good place to be, and we're glad we're here on the two year anniversary of Retro City. And it really is. Ahead. Yes, absolutely. And while we're here, while you you know you're on this subject, tell us a little bit more about Rob McCallum Films.com. Uh, well, you can go to RobMcCallumFilms.com and check out a lot of the movies that I've made, including Nintendo Quest and the follow-up series on Nintendo Quest Power Tour. If you order it on DVD or Blu-ray, you get a ninth uh, bonus episode. And if you liked everything you saw on Nintendo Quest, which has me challenging my buddy Jay to get all 678 original NES games in 30 days with no online purchases, you will love the series sequel follow-up, which has us going back across the country to even do more game hunting. And of course... There's other films on there, including a documentary on Kitty, heavy metal band that I'm working with, uh, Power of Grayskull and He-Man, and of course our upcoming docu-series on box art. And, well, also, don't forget the award-winning... The award, the, the multi-award-winning film now, uh, Missing Mom, which is touring the festival circuit right now, and uh, very humbled by the accolades that that film has achieved. It's doing extremely well, so check that out on robmccallumfilms.com today. Um, a couple more quick shout-outs for you know, GameSource. If you really want the latest and greatest in the gaming scene, head on over to GameSource on Facebook. Our good friends, Mario Party Wars. Want to give them, as always, a great shout-out. Sal, Yelton, Larna. Uh, Sal was on last week's podcast talking about board games. They are a part of it. If you want to check them out there, Mario Party Wars at Facebook. And then also, as well, one of our newest additions, Wine, Women, and Words, the great podcast regarding books and literature. You want to check it out today, right on the pop culture, cosmos.wordpress.com. Well, uh, we're here today, second anniversary at Retro City Games. What a better place to talk about a little retro gaming. Yeah. So, you know, obviously you have your influences with what the game that you made. Tell us a little bit more about the influences you have as far as your favorite consoles growing up and, and how that led you to making Henshin Engine today. Well, as I mentioned earlier, the TurboGrafx-16 was one of my favorite consoles growing up. Um, I did have an NES. I mean, what kids didn't have an NES back in the day? Um, I think a lot of the influence for my game comes from some NES games, too, like Mega Man. I mean, everybody played Mega Man, right? It, it's, I was hooked. It, yep, it was a classic. Um, I have to say, Mega Man's probably my favorite action platformer. So it, it's kind of hard for me. Like, I, I have a, a big love for the TurboGrafx, but I also have that... Um, huge nostalgia factor when it comes to the NES. You know, I think back to the NES and I remember so many games that I grew up with playing on the NES. So it, it, it's a coin toss for me. Sometimes I'm in a Turbo Graphics mode, sometimes I'm in a. So let Mega me ask Man you mode. this. Do you love the. Like, I, I feel like you project more of a Turbo fan, yeah. PC Engine fan. For sure. Is that because it is lesser known and you wanted to get it out there, or in because everybody seems to be like an NES fanboy and you're like guys there's this other system that came out too you know and that's the big thing the Turbo Graphics doesn't really get a lot of love when you compare it to what, what I call the, the the big boys in the video game market you know Nintendo the Sega Genesis I mean everybody knows these consoles but you mentioned the Turbo Graphics 16 nobody really knows what the Turbo Graphics 16 and the few people who do know you know, there aren't that many. So it, feel, I, it feels like the ColecoVision of that next generation. Everybody it, knows Atari, yeah. and the 2600, and the 5200, right. and everybody knows the Intellivision. And then Coleco came kind of as the third horse. Yeah. So I feel like, you know, Nintendo, it's very, Sega... It's very similar. You know, it's, it's the... Um, 
what's the word I want to use? The red redheaded stepchild of that sure. of that generation. But um, it's a great console. I mean, it's it's an eight bit console at its core. Uh, but for the time, it, it it really pushed the limits of what games could do back then. Because back, when that system came out, the, the Nintendo was the only thing that was available. We didn't have Super Nintendo. We didn't have Genesis. We didn't have anything in the sixteen bit. Uh, game field yet. Right. You know? so, um, I, I always loved the media, those cards, man. Right? Those cards are so cool looking. Yeah, like, like, it felt futuristic. I felt that, yeah, they were really ahead of their time. You know, those pocket sized games. I mean, the Master System did it too. Um, but like, but not, it wasn't their main media. Yeah, exactly, and that's the thing. Yeah, and you the know? Graphics, it was their main media, and the games that came out for it were really good for chip based games. Um, if you remember the Sega Master System cards, they were games, yeah, they were playable, but they weren't anything to write home about. It was really all the cartridge-based stuff that was really good. Right. So, and the cool thing with the Turbo Express, you could play those games on the Turbo Express, right? right? So the handheld for the Turbo fans, you know, you didn't have to buy a se- separate cartridge like you did for Game Boy. All you had to do was buy the peripheral, right. the handheld system, the handheld and use system, the same library. Pop it in. You're, I, personally, I was too poor to get one. They oh, like, so was I, but yeah, I just loved the concept. But just the fact that it was out, you yeah. know, it was, it was amazing to be able to just take those games with those graphics on the go with you. It was really the first console to do it, and it was really the first console to do CD-based media at home. So I think that's my biggest pull to the TurboGrafx scene and why I love that system so much. And that, that type of influence, you know, that gave you the impetus to, to create the Henshin Henshin yes. today. And you Definitely. see that. And now it's fully funded on, on Kickstarter as it far is. as it's concerned. <laughs> but there's still more steps to go, right? Yes. So where can they go once again? So to find out more about the project, you can go to www.tensionengine.com. Um, you can find out about the team. You can see footage of the game. You can even download um, the three-stage demo that we have uh, here for everyone to play. I got a question for you. I got to jump in here, Gerald. No, you're cool. You just told us about why you love that system, what makes it cool, some of the facets. How does it feel now that you're contributing to that library of offerings on that on that console? Like this is something that obviously you just spoke very passionate about. Yeah. And now it's not just a one-way street where you're enjoying it. You're giving back to it for everybody else that enjoys it. Let me tell you, man. It's it's been it's been a crazy ride. Um, we started out not knowing really which direction to go. I didn't have a programmer. Um, I just had a webcomic based on this system, and I wanted to do, you know, I, I was like, how cool would it, would it be to take this comic book and turn it into turn it into a video game, you know? And so I started throwing sprites together, and next thing you know, we started brewing something up. And I've always wanted to make a video game. Always, always. And, what better console to do it than the one console that I really have like a strong passion for? Right. Full so, circle it's, now. Yeah, it's, 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 it's been awesome, circle. and it feels great. Indeed. To answer your question, it, it feels it feels awesome to be able to do something like that. We got a fan over here now. There we go. Hey guys. See, we got doing? people here. It's live. It's unpredictable, folks. We can't we can't control Ooh. who's on camera. Indeed, indeed, it is. But you have your influence as well. I mean, Mr. Nintendo Quest, Mr. Nintendo Quest Power Tour. You have your influence as well that take you way back with, you know, obviously with your best friend Jay and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Uh, tell us a little bit about the influences that helped create your career in filmmaking. Wow, I mean, I've got from, a... From a video game standpoint, of course. Uh, there's so many. I mean, it's, it's funny because you say Mr. Nintendo Quest, but, you know, if I were to pick a, a library of games that I'm probably dedicated to, it's probably the Sega Genesis library. I mean, there are the staples that set everything off, of course. 
DJ, you mentioned Mega Man, of course. Who doesn't love that? Who doesn't love the Castlevania series? Right. Contra, Blades of Steel. Like you could go up and down the the staples of video gaming in the NES, but it was really the Genesis library that I felt like I actually was a gamer and not just as a kid playing with a toy that was kind of fun with your friends. Like I yes. really started being selective about the games that I got to play. And that's when I really learned about what video gaming could be and where it could go. Uh, any other influence as you were going along? You know, once you graduated from the Genesis, I mean, so many systems. Whoever came out really in the graduates 90s. from from the, yeah, no kidding. Well, you know, so many systems came out in the nineties. Well, that, I, I that, had a sixty-four. I was late to the party on that, and then I went uh, Dreamcast right after that. You know, and uh, back to Sega because I really didn't love my sixty-four as a solo kind of machine. That was a, a great machine when you had your four buddies around. So yeah. one of our buddies had it, then the rest of us didn't need it because that was the multiplayer machine. That's what brought yeah. multiplayer. The Mario Party. The Mario Party, so. Mario Kart, GoldenEye. Yeah, all that stuff. So I didn't enjoy that library as much as a solo player, and I love solo games, right? Like, we're living in an era now where there's a lot of games that are multiplayer only, and I'm like, I'd rather just sit in a room and play and enjoy the story on my own, right? I mean, it's similar to watching a movie, which shouldn't surprise anybody. I just love that one-on-one -on -one kind of experience. So after that, I was like, you know what? I'm going to go Dreamcast. Didn't get it on launch, but I got it the year after at Christmas. Four months later, they announced it was going to be discontinued, it felt like. And then uh, GameCube, and then, uh, you know... Through on through the years, um, I I know Doug and I recently talked about his influences and some of it came and, and, and you were talking about the experience of a single person going at it to complete the story. How much did the Legend of Zelda mean to you as far as and within that context? I, oh, the Legend of Zelda turned me off of gaming for a while. Did it? Now? To be honest, Orcarina a time. I, I hate the game. I know there's a lot of fans out there. That water temple, man, where you're flicking switches and raising and lowering the water levels. That would cost frustration to anybody. So, and I, I had the strategy guide, and you know what? It was just at a point where I put a, enough hours into it. And I was going through, I was just like, you know what, I'm done with these, like, levers and yeah. boots. At that and point, it's not even fun anymore. No, because you know, you're just, just going through the mechanics. You genius. lose the magic of yeah. it. So that kind of ended the Zelda romance for me, yeah. unfortunately. For me, Link to the Past, I think, was the last great Zelda game. Sure. I know a lot of people are going to disagree. They're going to be like, oh, blah, 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 you know. Skyward Sword yeah, was Skyward the best. Skyward Sword is amazing. But, you know, for me, it was Link to the Past. But it, for me, it's also the aesthetic, you know, it's missing that, like, I think there's something charming about the retro aesthetic, really you know, is. the sprites. Yeah. And I, and obviously a lot of people are doing it for a nostalgic reason because they're not limited to it now. Right. But I think there's just something more imaginative about it. Like, it's cartoony, so you want to extrapolate what that is. There's still personality and character to it. And this is stuff we talk about in box art, right? So, like, the early games couldn't portray some of those, like, renaissance-like qualities, but that informed what you were seeing in the sprites. It made you want to believe that it was more grandiose. Those covers, like on Final Fantasy, made you want to think those sprites were like Game of Thrones, yeah. right? You know, the interpretation yeah. in the box art, you know, that's what brought people in, in, in my opinion. Because you see a box, and when a box is drab, you know, you don't want to go in and play that game. Right. You'd see this awesome box art, you know, for this game, and it just it, it pulls you in. So, so i got to put you on the spot now. Henshin Engine's funded. Henshin Engine's funded. Box art for Henshin Engine. What are we doing there? I was actually thinking about making a box. Do you remember the TurboGrafx-16 boxes? So yep. I'm talking to a, a guy who makes those. So I'm thinking about making a box for Henshin Engine. So, Very cool. Uh, Our next topic when we come back is going to be all about what makes a good sci-fi and why should you care? Right here recording 
from the Retro City Games second anniversary coming up right after the break. For the latest reviews and opinions on everything pop culture, head on over to our brand new site, www.popculturecosmos.wordpress.com. You're listening to the Pop Culture Cosmos. Don't touch that dial. Wait, do, do people still use dials? What's up, guys? It's Rob McCallum, host of The Trenches. If you don't know what that is, well, I'm going to tell you. Every now and then, I call up friends, colleagues, and sometimes people I don't even know and chat with them for an hour or so. It's all unscripted, unedited, and unpredictable. Why should you care? Well, if you're a creative person like me, you'll get to hear unbelievable and incredible stories because the one through line that connects all my guests is that they make their living doing something creative in the trenches. Get it? So from filmmakers to animators to action figure sculptors and authors, we talk with a lot of folks, and no one has the same story. So check out The Trenches here on the Pop Culture Cosmos or on iTunes. And we're back, and we're checking phones to make sure we're uh, seeing if uh, Henshin Engine is uh, even more funded. Uh, we're back with Pop Culture Cosmos. How you doing again? This is Gerald Glassford, along with my good friends DJ from Henshin Engine, and also as well, Mr. Rob McCallum. Director of a plethora of great films out there. If you want to check them all out, that's going to be on robmccallumfilms.com. And also to check out Henshin Engine. Henshin Engine. Well, the good thing is, if they go to robmccallumfilms.com, there's a link to all the Henshin Engine stuff at the bottom of the page. So. Yes. One-stop shop. There you go. Or HenshinEngine.com, Henshin Engine on Kickstarter. I'm oh, sure yes. all my stuff's listed on your site too, right? No. Oh, no, it doesn't work like that, I guess. <laughs> So why there's decisions in the room? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I give you your shout-outs, but you know what? I, I, and we're I'm, a, live. I'm a jerk. I should put it on the website. Actually, no, that's Jesse. You talk to Jesse. He's the social media guy. So I love that. I love that. When there's anything in question, you talk to Jesse. Yeah, you talk, talk to Jesse. Jesse. It's, it's always Jesse. Wait, who's that social media guy? It's always his yep. fault. There he social media I'm guy just the game creator. Social what media is the, is, the, is the downfall of society. <laughs> it's the downfall. There you go. But uh, I want to ask you guys something. When I left the house, um, there was a decision that my, my wife and my kids were making as far as what to watch on television. Uh-huh. And there was a lot of choices, reruns of this, re- you know, maybe airings of that. But they decided to go ahead with a showing of The Empire Strikes Back. Seems to be a fallback uh. position for not only them, but also for many, many people around the world. Yeah. The reason why is because, well, for instance, the, the Empire Strikes Back is considered by many, including us, or including me, no. as, as See, one, you almost kind of set yourself up for as one of there. the finest examples of sci-fi filmmaking. I want to talk to you guys today, before we go, about your thoughts on sci-fi making. You have actually delved a little bit into that realm. So to speak. You might have. Okay, yeah. yeah. Okay, sure. You could yeah. call it. Yeah, I forgot about that. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I'm here today again with Rob McCallum and DJ from Henshin Engine. We're going to talk a little bit about sci-fi. And DJ, I'm going to start with you first. You know, we talked about your influences regarding video games. Yeah. Tell me about some of the influences, you know, regarding storytelling from a sci-fi standpoint and some of the memories that you have that might have helped influence you as an individual, your likes, your taste, but also maybe even Henshin Engine as well. Do, do you like sci-fi? Let's start with that. So I'm a Star Trek guy. There you so go. So that's I, sci-fi. I enjoy a lot of Star Trek. Um, I can't really say that it's influenced um, the game in any way, 
there's one sci-fi movie that does influence Tension Engine a little bit, and that would be Tron. Okay. Uh, there you go. Um, that's the whole like going into the virtual world thing that happens in Tension Engine. That's something that you know I really wanted to take from Sid Mead's work is that particular thing, you know where sure she goes into that like virtual the opening world. level of your demo feels very sci-fi to me the other levels right. maybe not so much more fantastical but that opening level that opening level's got that whole like grid feel yeah. you know the and slick chrome look to yeah, it yeah and that's kind of the feel that I wanted to go it's kind of in like that Tron yeah. direction with, with that whole thing but what about Tron that makes it so special for you that, that you wanted to make sure you put that influence within the game well uh, Tron was one of the earlier movies that had just these amazing effects you know the, the, the visuals the, the really colorful visuals you know it wasn't the fact that it was just cool sci-fi for the time but the fact that it was so colorful all the reds and blues there were so so many blue hues you know in that movie and that's actually one of the things I, I try to capture in that game with the the design of the first level is that whole like blue hue <laughs> feel yeah and so for me Tron was was just way ahead of its time um, but other than, than that I mean I like Star Wars like anybody else you know? see this everybody, is where I'm going to pick a bone okay everybody likes Star Wars yeah, I'm going to pick a bone with both of you guys right now because I don't think Star Wars is science fiction it's at best science fantasy what makes it science fiction it's just because it's in space I just think it's good. No, and space is not a prerequisite for it, for something to be sci-fi. And there I are think lasers. I, I so, but they don't talk about the science behind it. When you're talking about science lasers fiction, are science. there is usually a heavy kind of like science, an actual science and, understanding, and that's been an intellectualism. And that's been an argument for, for a long time in regards to whether or not Star Wars does qualify as science fiction as opposed to Star Trek, which right. actually delves into that aspect quite a bit. And that's uh, a lot of the arguments a lot of fans of both sides have. You know, they say, oh, well, you know, Star Wars is nice and whatever, but then Star Trek actually goes into the physics of things and talks about the sciences of how this happens. I mean, know, every episode of, of Star Trek, regardless of the show, there's at least two or three good monologues of techno babble. Yeah. Yes. And it's just like, the phase inverters on the power couplings have been scrambled <laughs> by the by the warp drive in this, you know, the silicon the right. membrane. And, you know, a lot, and there's a, lot a little of, bit of that a lot of in Star Wars. Up, but they also <clears throat> created this universe in Star Trek that they can go into these explanations and justify within the parameters of the and world it's still that they created. Yeah. And it's still interesting because they've created their own set of physics, their own science for a lot of what happens in Star Trek. So that in itself I think is interesting. I think, you know, I mean, I, we're kind of getting to the definition of what makes science fiction a science fiction well, film. Before you say that, Star Wars has often been considered almost more like a Western more it's than, very much a Western. More, more than uh, perhaps a sci-fi film. And I can understand both sides of that argument, but go ahead. I, I think for something to be truly science fiction, the, the actual science has to be an underlying principle into the plot and into the universe. You can't deny the thread of science in Star Trek or in a lot of even horror films that use science as the catalyst for whatever terror is going to get you know, the unleashed. Alien series. Very much right, so. Yeah. For me as well, Blade Runner, I think is a true... I, I think that is an example of sci-fi in the future. Um, I'm just so excited for the sequel that... that Jurassic Park is yes. another good one. Yes, because it does explain the science as far as how the dinosaurs created and how they come to life. Uh, some other great examples for you for science fiction that won't get Rob mad. Good luck. Hmm. <laughs> Wrong. 
I haven't even said it yet, Rob. Um, uh, right now, um, I think I'm on my third rewatching of Stranger Things. Nice. Not that that's there really. I mean, it, it's certainly more fantasy. More with, fantasy, but, but I think there's enough there's, science there elements is. to that. There's, to there's at least the one through line, yeah. To it, you know, um, with the whole you know, uh, character with telekinesis and well, the whole like lab, like trying then, to right, just the, the trying lab. to understand by experimentation. There's, right. I, I would almost give it to you. And there's almost, show. and there's some movies really coming out in the near future that that are being targeted as as possible um, heirs to that sci-fi throne with the arrival with. With obviously Star yeah. War, uh, well, again Star Wars Rogue One, and then uh, Passengers has also been yeah. talked about uh, recently as something that might delve a little bit into that more science fiction realm. Um, what are your summer thoughts about some of the films that, that are coming out that might qualify under that auspices? I, I'm so excited for stuff like The Passenger and The Arrival because it's nice to see Hollywood really investing a lot of big bucks in more original concepts. You know, and we saw Interstellar not that long ago. We saw Gravity not that long ago. And these films seem to be of that irk. In 2017, we got even more sci-fi to look forward to. And, and, I think they, and they all connected with audiences. They all did well. and Because there's enough that makes us wonder, and they're hopeful, but they're also just a little bit scary, right? Yes. You know, I'm going to go back to Jurassic Park, and that's what makes that film so good. There's an awe and wonder about what if this could happen, and then what if this goes wrong? You know, there are downright scenes and sequences from Jurassic Park that are horror. Like, it's straight up yeah. like a horror movie, right? It's fantastic, but there are other parts where you really feel like this would be the coolest thing ever. Now, and I, I mentioned briefly about you delving a little bit into the sci-fi realm. I mean, yeah. as far as, you know, wanted to delve into that. Tell yeah. us a little bit about, as a director, what you think is a great storytelling narrative in regards to sci-fi films. Well, I mean, my first feature film is Unearthly. It's a sci-fi adventure, very much like Jurassic Park. And I love it. I just forgot about it. <laughs> I, I did completely forget about that. Oh, like, yeah, oh, that yeah. picture. Oh, yeah, that one that I've done. Um, it's uh, And it's basically just set up as, as a legend, so there's very much a fantasy aspect to it. But I really tried to weave the science into there to make it, you know, grounded in something that's extrapolated. So it's influenced by a lot of films by like Teratovsky so like Stranger and Solaris and where the idea is you know what if zones and parcels of land were affected with radiation that caused things to mutate and take on an evil presence and that's where these treasures are, are kind of hidden so is that treasure worth going in there is it worth kind of the things that are going to lie in there maybe maybe not but if you're a dad and you find out that your daughter, who's obsessed with treasure hunting like you were once, goes in there without you knowing, you're going to go after her. Of course. And that's the, that's the concept of Unearthly. And, of course, like any good treasure hunt, there's more than one person looking for it, and it's a race to the finish. And it's still available today, too, as far as for, uh, yeah. if somebody wants to view it. How? RobMcCallumFilms.com. There's links for digital, uh, and uh, you can buy it on disc. I think for the digital version we're offering 99 cents to rent it or $1.99 to download it. Oh, wow. And it's actually a film that you want to see because it is actually something that... Well, that yeah, has, I think it's a lot of fun. Yeah. It, it's, and really, just despite the fact that you know you might have not I've exactly... Forgotten about it. <laughs> exactly. It is still something that people out there should take a watch to. You know, what, what's it going to hurt you? It, it's it's a dollar. It's one dollar. Everybody's exactly. got a dollar. Got a dollar. Yeah. RobMcCallumFilms.com but uh, DJ, before we head on out as far as for this segment, I want to ask real quick your thoughts in closing on really the sci-fi films that you're looking forward to and then what makes, in your opinion, a really good sci-fi film? Hmm. I have to be honest, I'm not really 
There aren't any films right now that I can say I'm looking forward to. What makes Tron a great sci-fi film then? Because it's got to be more just, just other than it's yeah. more than it, it's it's lasted this long in people's mind and ingrained in people's memories outside of just the imagery. Because the imagery is, is something obviously right. that sticks with you, but there has to be something more. Well, I mean, just the overall aesthetic of Tron, I think, is is something that wasn't done back in in that time. Um, yeah, other than that, I, I can't really say a whole lot about other than. That's that's the storytelling now. To what I was hoping you would say because I, you know, it was uh, something that at the time was very unique of you being trapped within that realm. Right, yeah, and that whole virtual world thing. Star Trek aside. Star well, thanks Trek for coming out, DJ. <laughs> we'll see you later. And uh, fine. Star Trek now, aside. So, what Star does Star Trek? How does Star Trek appeal to you? Because you said you were a Star Trek fan. Yes, very much so. Um, What's your favorite uh, iteration? You know, it used to be Next Generation. Uh-huh. And then... Now I'm worried. I'm worried. I'm not going to say to you Space Nine. It was Voyager. I'm going to decrease my <laughs> pledge right now. Uh, Voyager had this whole like cast of characters that you just got close to. Sort of next generation, for the most part, but I felt like Star Trek Voyager almost took a sci-fi slash fantasy approach to it that next generation was more about the actual science of how things work within the Star Trek universe. Yeah, there was a fantastical and exploration about Voyager. Yeah, there was a whole adventure aspect. So for Voyager me, it's Voyager. it's next gen, just because I think the amount of episodes that they're able to conjure and still explore like new ideas is great. And then it's Voyager. I can't get into Deep Space Nine. But I want honestly, to Deep Space Nine. I just this this week, literally this week, I've just got into Enterprise. That's another one I have a hard time with. I, I, I couldn't get through the first four episodes because it was all winks and nods to the fact that it's a prequel and right. things are different. But once you get past like episode four or five, it's it's Trek. It's classic Trek. Is it? Yeah, yeah it's no. so good. And, and I love Scott Bakula. I'll, I'll have to revisit And I wanted to touch on this. What are your thoughts as far as how has the reboots connected with you today? And, and what do you look for when Discovery comes out, now delayed to May of next year when it hits uh, CBS All Access? I have mixed feelings about the reboots, the, the Star Trek reboot movies. They kind of feel like they're just trying to go for a mass appeal thing, not so much the people who are into Star Trek, which yeah. is, I, I mean, that's understandable. They want people to see the movie. They're going to want to do that whole mass appeal thing. I just feel that um, more... Star Trek fans would feel if it was closer to the source material that yeah, it would, it I feel like justice. the great thing about Trek is you need that sense of wonder every episode yeah. or that crazy like human moral conundrum that it's like oh my god what would I do don't have no it's you know, just like pretty much on rails yeah exactly it's action sequence and action yep. sequence and how do we get between the two sorry yeah. JJ but we saw it in Force Awakens as well. <laughs> But he's got a formula, and he likes to stick yes, to it. Yes, he does. Um, and yes, he does. I mean, and it works for... You know, for the, him? The, well, and the general audience. Well, the latest one did not connect with audiences as well as the previous two, uh, so there is some concern I like Beyond the future. better than the second one, Star Trek Beyond. Uh, there's a lot of plot holes, just like there were with Into Darkness. The first one, I th think, still stands the test of time the most, but uh, there was a lot of character stuff in Star Trek Beyond, so... They're at least moving towards yeah, a more Trek-like direction. Into development. Did you see Star Trek Beyond? More. I did. But 
I still have to say the first one was really. If if I had to pick out of the new ones, other than three, the first one. Yeah, it's the first one. Three, the first me. one is definitely the, the best one. That one is. Uh, that's why it's one of the most watched films on television today. Still, is because I guess it just has that. You like it does have its issues. But as far as a fun movie that that rolls through, tells a tells a story, just point A to point Z, and just just goes through it and, and doesn't stop, unfortunately, sometimes to tell a better narrative. But it does so in favor of maybe just trying to get it like like you were saying a mass audience. But for it's it's to me and and I guess a lot of other people, it's just an easy watching experience. I guess whenever it comes up on on FX or or whatever avenue it comes up on, that's I think that's why it's held up so well. Um, Star Trek Beyond, I did not rate as strongly as you did, but I still rated a, a favorable film. Um, I, I just think that that the future for Star Trek is still there, and I think that they, I know that they have talked about possibly a, a, a gen, you know, almost like a Star Trek Generations type deal where they're meeting back with Chris Helmsworth ca uh, character. Yeah. That they've talked about doing that. Um, I'm hoping that they'll delve into that. Maybe that'll spice up. Uh, with audiences a lot more. I know there's. I had a lot of issue with where they placed it in the schedule. I think that was a lot of his reason why that Star Trek Beyond didn't get a chance to connect it. I think they rushed it out because of the 50th anniversary. And I think in doing so, they just they put it in a month where there was a lot of films stacked against it. Sure. And I think that cost them quite a bit of their audience because their audience was fatigued from from seeing this film and seeing this film. And they, you know, we often think in in when we you know, analyze the movie industry that there's, you know, everybody has this abundance of cash during the summer to watch all these films. And, and unfortunately, no, people most part just only see, uh, collect, what, two, three films over the summer max? Usually, yeah. Exactly. So they have to pick and choose. So for me, Star Trek Beyond could have been done a lot better. I'm hoping for a better future for the movies. Discovery, your thoughts on that? I'm, I'm so torn because I wanted it to be out January. I wanted it to be that like the big New Year thing where you jump in. But and it didn't I, seem I don't like they were prepared. It didn't seem like they were ready to go ahead and. and I would rather wait for a good product, and that's what it always comes down to. You know, it, it was just around the corner, but I'm ready to wait until May and like maybe give it a nice run so that it runs in tandem with Game of Thrones, right? So you can watch Thrones, you can watch Discovery. I'm assuming it's going to be every week. Um, and it's going to be on May, you know, part of the May sweeps. At least the first week will be on CBS itself to yeah. give everybody a taste of it. So, uh, do you have any uh, thoughts on Discovery? Do you know yourself? about how much do you know about Star Trek Discovery? Not a lot. Okay, so it's ten episodes, and it's uh, it's like a series. So they they all go together, right? So they're like it's a story that builds. It's not individual episodes. It's serialized, and uh, it follows not necessarily the captain, but more the ranks underneath as it relates to what's going on. Okay. Yeah, I don't know. And it's set before uh, Spock and Kirk. Oh wow! Okay. But you will need CBS All Access. But after to get, Enterprise. But you will need CBS All Access to get well access to all the episodes uh, in order to be able to view it. Let's hope there's strong word of mouth. Let's hope there's actually a good product. Uh, we'll be keeping a sharp eye on Discovery as that May uh, premiere date hopefully draws near. Yeah. So I want to once again I want to thank uh, DJ from uh, Henshin Engine, a fully funded game on Kickstarter from, as of tonight, and the man who put it over the top. Oh, I'm not the only one. There's, <laughs> no, there's over been... 250 people that made that happen. Thanks for checking out the PCC. You know the pop culture cosmos. We'll be back in one moment.
It's time for more sarcasm, more gloating, more pop culture BS, and ridiculous video game chat as GamerCast returns for Season 2. My name is Rob McCallum, and this year, once again, I'm joined by Mr. Glenn Stanway and my lifelong friend, Jay Bartlett. This year, the show moves to a slightly different format, favoring a more unedited adventure that lets us include more topics as we get together once a month to vent and celebrate everything going on in the gaming industry today and yesteryear. So if you like the idea of arguing with us, though we'll never be able to hear you, then you definitely want to check out GamerCast. Season 2 is really going to take it up a notch. That's GamerCast here on the PCC, the Pop Culture Cosmos, on iTunes, and on Podbean. GameSource is your number one source for everything video games. Each week we bring you the best of the video gaming world from sites all over the internet. Like us today on Facebook or follow us today at GameSource and you'll stay up with the latest in information and news, plus also about all the great things we're doing on our GameSource Facebook, Twitter, and GameSource YouTube pages. Stay up to date with the video gaming world right here at GameSource. And we're coming back with a another exciting segment of the Pop Culture Cosmos. This is Gerald Glassford along with my good friends DJ from Henshin Engine, a fully funded game. And I've also got my good friend as well, the director of Nintendo Quest, Nintendo Quest Power Tour, the Kitty Documentary, oh my gosh, uh, box, art. box Art, the docu This is going to be like a trivia question. Soon. Exactly. What is it? Rob name, McCallum. name eight films right. that Rob McCallum produced in 2014. <laughs> is there like D, all of the above? Yeah. It is Rob McCallum. And uh, we're going to talk about one of those projects he was doing. Uh, obviously something that is near and dear to his heart. It's a film that's won acclaim from all over the world. And I don't say that, you know, offhanded. I don't say that as a blown smoke anywhere. It is actually a film that has garnered acclaim from all over this planet. Yeah. It's a film called Missing Mom. I got a chance to review it. If you want to see a little bit uh, about it, uh, you know, spoiler free, of course, want to check out uh, popculturecosmos.wordpress.com. There's an article on it there, a review I did on it. I want to talk to you a little bit and ask some questions in regards sure. to the film itself. Um, the background as far as what took place before that call that you, you know, or that decision was made, that, that the call that, in the, if you haven't seen the trailer at least, it's on Rob McCallum Films, his YouTube page, look for it. Actually, when you type in Rob McCallum Films, it comes right up, it's the first thing you see. Oh, sweet. Yeah, so. That when, worked out. And when the first thing you see in that trailer is you announcing that you're going to go ahead and. Yeah, I'm calling and, my uncle and yeah. I, I basically kind of throw the premise of the film, I'm like, Hey, Uncle Rob, because his name is Rob. So I was actually named after him. I said, I think, I'm thinking about making another documentary, and I want to go in search of my mom. What do you think? And he says, good luck with that. So that kind of sets the tone Were you, were you surprised with that reaction initially? No, I kind of knew that was going to be the reaction, so it was all kind of set up to, to kind of capture that because to really this, establish things. Has this been something that's been sitting within the family for quite a long time? Yeah, I mean, uh, my mom, you know, has, has been missing for almost 25 years. So it was kind of like, huh. Everybody kind of knows about it, but nobody talks about it. It's one of Is those... Is that kind of like the elephant in the room where... Yeah, it's it's, ta- it's not taboo, but it's taboo. It's just like, you sweep it under the rug, but you know that there's something there. They don't yeah. talk about it, but it's something yeah. that... Uh, it's, it's something that's pretty obvious. Exactly. I mean, because it's like... You know, it's my mom, and I was right. raised by, like, her parents, my grandparents, so 
there's that obvious connection between us. Um, when you were, you know, first initially talking about doing it, uh, was there any kind of positive reception at all, maybe? Uh, I think there was confusion. I mean, uh, it was kind of a nerve-wracking thing for me to approach my family because, again, it wasn't anything we discussed, right? So I'm like, so here's the, this documentary I'm going to do. My last one was about Nintendo games and my friend Jay and my whole family knows him and he was going to get this stuff so for me to say my next film was well I'm going to do another documentary and I pitched it as it's going to be a documentary on missing people and I want to kind of use the story of my mom being missing as at least the through line if not the main story and I think a lot of my family was really confused on what that was but they kind of just said sure whatever interesting <laughs> yeah. uh okay like yeah extreme from one type of thing all the way to the other and yeah I, and i can assure you that the uh, the film is not two hours of sure whatever yeah yeah <laughs> it is not two hours of sure whatever and it's interesting you say that though uh dj because i think you'll see a lot of parallels with nintendo quest when you exactly. see missing mom really because it's very much another road movie with my brother and I, Chris, going on the hunt to see if we can find her and what different leads we get. So much like Jay, going store to store, we're going lead to lead, and it's different twists and turns. Wow. And, and there are some similarities in that, that I wanted to also point out regarding Chris and Jay because they are, you know, they're not as familiar with the camera as far as, you know, when they first are appear on the screen. Um, they're not as comfortable. Um, it is it is something that that obviously was not something that that they had had you know walked into with a great bit of experience or right no like I just kind of threw the camera in both that, instances on those guys and they're good sports um, so with Chris um, what was your first initial conversation with him and was there was there any reluctance was there any questioning uh, similar to what the rest of the family <laughs> was in line with uh, he was a little different he didn't you know he didn't know what to say he doesn't have any memories of our mom because he was so little when she had last left so I said so, hey, man, I want to get your opinion before I kind of make the decision on this to see what you think, because obviously it affects them. And I said, I'm thinking about doing a doc about finding our mom, and I'm going to try to find our mom. And I know it's been almost 25 years. What do you think? And I think he said, oh, well, that's interesting. <laughs> you know, in, in the most kind of inquisitive, huh, that's curious kind of way, not like... That would be great to find our mom, just like, right. huh? And he's a he's a police like a officer, so he's like, huh, the, the hunt is upon us. Wow. Okay, I just want to make sure it's like, hmm, I think Ra's been, uh, you know, maybe hit the logger a little no, bit No, 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 he wasn't worried about the, it being a crazy idea. He was actually genuinely intrigued by the idea of looking for her and trying to define answers because as someone who didn't have any memories, he even knew less than I did because I had memories. I was about nine when she disappeared and he was uh, four so he was just like three so and a half four it was probably something he'd never thought of really and then you bringing it up it was like oh, and, yeah that might be and we had never really talked about it i think the most that he got kind of growing up was like you know so where's your mom because he was raised by his grandparents we have different dads and i was raised by our maternal grandparents our mom's parents um and so when he became a cop a lot of people said well, you know, have you start, Have you tried to look for your mom now that you have access to certain tools and search engines and stuff? And he's like, no. You know, so I was just like, what do you think about this? He's like, huh, interesting. I, I, I think that's a good thing. And, you know, do you want me to be a part of it? I'm like, sure, I'm going to be filming. And I initially called him because I'm like, I got to interview you because he's part of the story to right. get your thoughts on it. And then he's like, no, I'll fly down and I'll be a part of it. It's great. So how long was this brewing in, in Rob McCallum's 
you know, vision as far as that's concerned. I something that that has been dealt. I know something. Obviously, you know, your mom has been gone for so long. Somebody that you missed, you, you that you wanted to go and see if you could find and you could search and Not, you could try to find those answers. No, no. I mean, I gotta even stop you there. I had resigned the fact really early on. Like she disappeared in 1990, and I had resigned the fact that I would never really? see her. Probably by 96 or so. Like. As a kid, you just stop getting your hopes up after a while. It's like when adults lie to you and they right. break promises. I never expect her to walk through that door again. And leading up to her disappearance, it was very spotty visits. Because I was raised by my grandparents, it was whenever she could stop by, whenever she was working. And she never lived in the same town for the majority of my custody with her, her parents, my grandparents. So it was like I was used to the infrequency, and that infrequency just kept growing. So I would say by 96 or 97, I had kind of resigned the fact that she wasn't going to be in my life and it was really a Nintendo Quest that kickstarted the idea um, Jay had gone on this adventure in, in you know, an attempt to do something that everybody thought would be impossible and I'm sitting there playing Child of Light which is a game about a girl trying to do anything possible to get back to her dad in another dimension and I'm like what could I do as, as a film that people would say would be impossible and I said find my mom like it was that quick wow yeah so that was something that was triggered by you playing child of light child of light and, and nintendo quest that's so cool yeah that's so really cool. and i've talked to the guys at ubisoft and i mean they're very aware of it and stuff and they give us a big push and stuff that's and, really cool yeah but that's it was, it was awesome. that's very actually, much i was going to ask you how you went about going from directing films about video games something much more of a different uh, venture, different nature, a more I don't want to say more serious nature because if somebody sees Nintendo Quest, there are some serious topics that you tackle in that film yeah. but something of a, like like we're saying, like we're trying to allude to, it's something very different uh, off the beaten path from what you were just completed it just doesn't feel different in my heart because it's just like, here's the project here's what you're trying to do Nintendo Quest happened to be about video games. He-Man happens to be about, you know, an action figure and cartoon. Kitty happens to be about heavy metal. This just happened to be about me finding, you know, my mom and trying to get the answers, you know. And it, I just don't think of it as, oh, well, it's not video games, so how do I do it? It's, it's still that ongoing hunt. The cameras are rolling, and what are we going to find every day? So that's why I say they're so similar, because it's another road movie, right? And it's the cameras are following and getting the reactions as, as things come up. So, so when you were trying to get the funding for the film and, and trying to get everything together in preparation, um, what were your, your you know, aspects? What, what, what were you thinking as far as how to get this film funded and how were you envisioning your mind? How are you going to lay out you know, making the film? Uh, well, I, I self-funded a, a lot of the film even before I went to uh, Kickstarter for a little bit later. So... When the, when the production was wrapping up and I, and I felt I got to the point where there was a story in the can, I went to Kickstarter looking for $2,000 just to help with a little bit of finishing costs, but everything else was just out of pocket. Um, I was fortunate enough to have a lot of corporate gigs line up that gave me a little bit of a cushion, and I just ended a really big corporate contract that was going on for like two years. So like the second that Nintendo Quest ended, I had like a, a really big like corporate gigs like over and over again and then it just ended and I'm like this is when I'm going to try to shoot this film and it was only about two months before that that I decided that this was going to be my next film um, so it was just all self-funded and then once I felt like I'd shot enough 
Then I was like, I just need a little bit more help to kind of finish it and put some polish on it. Tell me about uh, a little bit about Jordan's contribution to the film because I know sure. that someone. Uh, obviously, the film is a lot about you. Mm -hmm. A lot about, obviously, the search for you and your brother's search for your mom. Yep. Tell me a little about how Jordan helped put this film and make it reality. So uh, Jordan C. Morris has been working with me since Unearthly, that first sci-fi action adventure. And uh, we the just... The one you almost forgot about. The one I almost <laughs> forgot about. Uh, we just... There's, there's certain people you collaborate with where you just click. Absolutely. And it's not like a predictive thing where I say something and he finishes my sentences. We just have a very similar sensibility about approach and... You're going we, down the same path. Yeah. The same we, ideas. We like the same things. And he's a guy that I can trust. He's very level-headed. He never gets too worked up. But he gets excited about the same things that I get excited about, which is fun. And he likes making movies. So... He uh, produced and co-wrote uh, Nintendo Quest with me, and for this, I wanted him to come on and, and write and co-produce as well, but because I was going to be in so much in front of the camera, I needed an extra set of eyes behind the camera, even though he has a lot of screen time. I said, so why don't we co-direct this so that there is a little bit of objectivity? And when we're interviewing my family members, I said, Jordan, why don't you sit down so that they can tell you the story, because they're going to act like I already know the story, so I won't get the right kind of answers. So I would handle all the technical stuff, all the camera positioning and shots, and, and kind of dictate the stylistic approach of the film. And then Jordan became kind of like the, the journalist, the interviewer, to pull the stuff out based on the questions I would give him in advance. Now, I want to ask about the, your family itself in dealing with the film. Mm. Um, you, obviously, you, mm. you already indicated regarding you know, some of the feelings and some of the emotions that were going through when you said you were going to go out on the search with your brother. Um, were there any really difficult periods of time with your family that were yeah. created because of it? Yeah, like uh, after almost after every interview I did, <laughs> I would get vibes from family members like the death look. Uh, no, it was even it was worse than the death look because it was like uh, an acknowledgement like I didn't exist. Like, why would you put me on camera talking about those things? And now I have these things stirred up inside that I haven't thought about for decades. And it's, I'm telling you right now, being on camera and even doing the documentary for me is a very therapeutic process. And same thing happened with Kitty. Same thing happened with some of the guys we talked to for, for He-Man. It was very emotionally like investigative for them. They, they went back and rediscovered things and hadn't thought about things. So for my family, this taboo subject that they'd swept under the rug, now all of a sudden I'm the guy that's making them feel these things and I become this target. And so after every interview, they, nobody slept well, and I would hear about it with little comments in there. But I think the biggest kind of nail in the coffin was uh, when the trailer came out, and everybody saw that first trailer. And, you know, I'm not sugarcoating anything at all in this film. And it, nor should you. I mean, in order to get it across to an audience, you, you really can. Yeah, and uh, it basically came to the point where I had family members telling me, you should wait for your grandparents to pass away before this film comes out. It could only be a few more years. You can wait. Don't release wow. this film. You're destroying the family. That's, that's really so I, I say to anybody that's ever been like troubled by like internet trolls out there, you don't know what it's like until you've made a film that your family turns on you. Oh, wow. And it's just based on a trailer. Like nobody had seen the film, so I understand. And that trailer is cut to be very hard hitting. Like it's it's emotional and it's crafted to be that by design. Hey, Uncle Rob. Listen, I'm going to be in Ontario the first few weeks in November, and I'm starting another documentary. I'm actually going to see if I can track down my mom. Oh, good luck on that one. This is my mom, Terry Lee Parker. And this is the last image we have of her. Because on the night of October 27th, 1990, 
she vanished, and no one has seen her since. Being a mother, the worst thing always goes through your mind first. You know, I've even Googled her name, and the only Terry Lee Parker that ever come up on a hit was her some girl out in BC. I never believed the words she said. She could tell me anything, I wouldn't believe it. So basically, the less we saw of her, the better it was. Would I chase her? No, I would not chase her. If I don't find anything, then I don't find anything, but at least I know I tried to do it. You don't know the whole story. I, I have no idea why she just up and ran. A lot of kids who don't know their biological parents really feel they need to find out where they came from. I always wish I knew what happened to her because she, she was important to me. I really don't think she wants to be found. People can have their names changed for a simple fee. It was almost like she had taken on this other identity. This isn't going to be figured out in a month. It might not be figured out in a year. She was a con artist. She could be living in Ontario. She could be living out west. She could be in jail. Somebody has to know where she is and what happened to her. Searching for the truth can be scary. You might not like what you find. Thinking about it now, like, it hurts. As more time passes, you know, you just have to think, maybe she isn't with us anymore. If you find her and you have an opportunity to say something. What's the first thing going to come out of your mouth? Hi, Lee. I think you're my mom. I saw the trailer and it's the first, it is, the first thing I thought to myself that this has to introduce a very strong emotional component to Rob for what he's doing and you kind of answered my question about how you weren't the only one producing it so that's probably how that you got over that hurdle but I mean it must be really hard to deal with making a film that hits extremely close to home exactly I mean it's here's the thing like and you're an artist right you know what you believe in and it, you can't turn your back on what you believe in. And no matter what. to be honest, it was the easiest film I've ever made. Really? Because it was just so cut and dry to me. Like, and you, Jordan, already had, you already had pictured in your head exactly what what comes next. It was just really clear to me. Like, Nintendo Quest had twenty one very different versions. Like very different. Not like I'm gonna lose the scene or change this, and now that's a different version. Like different feels, different setups, different executions. This had three. Just by comparison, it was just very straightforward, and I knew exactly how to present the stuff. Um, I edited the film as well, and so it was just, it was very, I just knew what I wanted. And the hardest part was just sticking to my convictions and saying, no, this is the film I want to make. And people might get hurt, but that's the truth, and so be it. And much in the way... Skywalker. uh, Exactly. (laughs) Much in the way uh, uh, Nintendo Quest, as far as the ending, we will leave as far as the secret as far as what happened there mm-hmm. same thing for Missing Mom putting that to the side after the filming has ended and after the production's ended now there's actually something tangible that, that people can see is there still any hard feelings among the family members that interviewed with, with you as far as part of the picture are there still those those <laughs> tensions that have been frayed are there still or, or has they have they moved on I think now that a lot of the family has seen the film and they're not relegated to just uh, their imagination conjuring things based on the trailer. There's more of an understanding to, to what I what I did in the story that I presented. But I think there's always kind of like, you know, no, nobody likes seeing themselves on film sometimes. Like, they're not comfortable with that. So 
imagine multiplying that by a million because now you're talking with family emotions and these people saying these things. Nobody's called me up and said, I can't believe you put that line in there because they all know what they said. You know, and nothing is, is cut or misconstrued. It's just a very hard hitting, uncomfortable, emotional roller coaster that'll hit everybody in a place that we all recognize. How do you go into something like that and still, you know, be. I, I don't want to say that you're emotionless, but you kind of have to put your emotions on the side. You, so, I mean, what I, what I think you're asking is how do you both go on this journey and still maintain objectivity as a filmmaker yes. to get your job done every day? And, and it's a hard thing. I mean, for me, it's honestly using the excuse as the filmmaker to go in there and have the courage to talk to these people about this stuff. Okay. I don't think I could have picked up the phone and talked to everybody that we interviewed and asked them the same questions unless I had those cameras rolling. That was the, the device that allowed me to explore that. So in some ways, it took the 25 years before we even considered looking because I had to become a filmmaker in order to know how to even approach that subject with a that sense of confidence and, and like I was comfortable making a film because I'm a filmmaker I couldn't do that as a person because it's been a weird personal situation so I had that thing to hang on to right so because the cameras were rolling you essentially had an objective regardless yeah. of what your emotions were they were second place yeah. because the cameras were there you had to get this that kept your statement. focus as far as the filmmaker's yeah. Yeah. concerned that's interesting yeah. what do you want most importantly for audiences to get from the film, what do you want them to take away when they watch Missing Mom? Well, going into it, you know, both on the phone and on camera, I, I say stuff, it doesn't matter where we end up, it doesn't matter what happens in the final five minutes or anything like that. What matters is that you have the courage to go on these things that people say are impossible or things that may haunt you for years or that you're scared to do. It's okay to take a deep breath and, and go out and, and dare to try to do things that people you know swipe away and if I can inspire anybody to have the courage to pick up a phone and talk to a family person because they see everything I go to or to you know spend some time looking a lot of people will tell others to give up but they don't know what it's like to be in that situation so you know always have hope that's that's the main message never give up on both sides of that so whether you are someone who's estranged from your family and you're you're the outsider or somebody who's part of the the majority looking for that you know, never give up. There's, there's a lot that you can discover about yourself and about the situation. That's Missing Mom, and you can always find out more information on that at robmccallumfilms.com. Hench and Engine, fully funded game. Rob has not taken back his donation as of yet. Not yet. Hang <laughs> yes. on. Not yet. Once again, this is uh, Pop Culture Cosmos on the Podcast Radio Network. If you get a chance, check us out Monday nights, 10 p.m. Eastern, 7 p.m. Pacific. If you miss us there, you can check us out a number of places, including our podcast.com PCC channel, also our iTunes Pop Culture Cosmos channel, and our home site, popculturecosmos.wordpress.com. So for uh, there's a few options by the sounds of it. There you go. So there's no excuse not to listen to every great Just episode. Just like everybody has a buck, everybody can listen in. So for DJ from Henshin Engine, and I also got Rob McCallum here on behalf of the second anniversary for Retro City Games. Woo! Congratulations again to Doug and Nicole for for two years of awesomeness in the retro gaming world and allowing the community to come together here in Las Vegas. This is the Pop Culture Cosmos, the name he created. I, I regret it already. Exactly. 
I so think there it's you catchy. Go. I like it. Well, we've got one fan, folks. There you go. <laughs> We're looking for a lot more, so we appreciate you listening. Thanks again for joining us on the Pop Culture Cosmos. Pop. My eardrums just popped. <laughs> there you go. Thanks again for listening. It's another beautiful evening in paradise here at the second anniversary of Retro City Games. We truly appreciate you listening and hope you have yourselves a great day. <laughs>